From PowerlineBlog.com and produced by Ricochet.com, this is The Powerline Show with your host, Steve Hayward. Well, this life that I've been living ain't too easy on the soul. Sometimes you gotta give in and let that whiskey flow. When you're feeling lost down and low. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to our regularly scheduled time slot for the Three Whiskey Happy Hour. Lucretia joins me again. Uh, what are you I drinking see. this weekend, I'm Lucretia? I'm drinking scotch. Well, I know, but what kind? I mean, I did. I know thinking, that. What is it? Uh, Gledfiddich, eighteen-year-old. That's my new favorite. I'm not. I, I, things are too much in a state of flux for me to be trying anything new. Yeah. Okay. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm knocking back a Talisker eight, which is uh, as those PD Isle malts go that Edifile. you don't like is uh, is, is a milder one, um, but. Uh, I may have a lot of it this weekend. Uh, listeners, we are not done talking about the uh, the mess uh, over in Afghanistan and our government's clumsy handling of it. And we're delighted to be joined uh, again by a special guest. Uh, it's Michael Anton, who I calculated the other day has been the most frequent guest on Powerline podcasts wow. over the last four or five years. So congratulations, Michael. Thank you. Um, I, you I'm sure you're getting sick of us by now, but uh, no, no, I'm sick of it. you. Okay, well, good, because uh, I know you're now starting your own podcast. What are you, well, what are you calling yeah, it? It's an intermittent thing. It was Ryan yeah. Hennie. He just titled it after my book, The Stakes. I think I've done right. I think I've done five episodes, four of which have aired. The forthcoming one is a discussion. I reviewed a book for the CRB called Texas versus California, yes. a, a political science book by an academic who teaches at CMC. And uh, I decided I had the perfect interview guest in Matt Peterson, who moved from California to Texas, <laughs> about seven or eight months ago and you know to give us the lowdown on what it's like and that's that's a good fun conversation and when it's out i hope everybody listens yeah well i i may where do we find it it'll be uh, wherever the crb you know the puts their american mind uh, well yeah american mind podcast uh is that what it's not through that channel though whatever the normal claremont channel is i think it mostly goes on the american mind page yeah yeah, I, 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 if we have time, I may or may not want to try and bring up your long conversation with Curtis Yarvin that caused such a fuss from the. Yeah. Oh, but we got a million things to talk about. But let's start with um, well, you've, these three terrific articles recently. You, you said to me in the email that you're in a fugue state right now. Just uh, uh, how much time are you spending your computer every day right now? Must be a lot. Uh, well, there was a lot, I suppose, pent up because I had really hard teaching duty the spring and, and summer semesters with new classes, new prep, new lectures, new readings, and it just took up so much time that I didn't have time to write very much. Ah, and right. once that was you know lifted, all of a sudden some pieces tumbled out. And, and some of them, I have to say, you know, I get kudos from friends. I, I welcome the kudos, but I just want to say that uh, a lot of these things are rattling around in my head for so long that when it comes time to write them, it's like taking dictation and it can be done in an hour or two. People say, how can yeah. you write that and so quickly as well? Because I didn't have to do any research. I didn't have to do any fresh reading. I didn't even have to formulate the argument. Like I already knew exactly what it needed to say. And the yeah. Afghanistan piece, so I got an, an inquiry from a TV producer. Can you go on our show tonight? I thought, oh, we'll talk about this. Okay. It ultimately didn't work out. TV's fickle business, you never right. know, nothing's guaranteed. But he said, send me a couple of points on what you would say. And I just, you know, mad dash email, I would say these things. And then I sent it to a group text that I'm on. And uh, one of our friends, David Azarad, said, you should publish that. And Pulos, hmm. another one of us, says, absolutely, you got to do it. 
And it, it really only took me about two hours to take what I had sent in an email to a producer to fashion it into 2,500 words or what it was, because it was also, you know, formulated in my head. I didn't need to, I didn't need to really work through it any further than that. Yeah. Here it is. I, I, I've got three articles here that I've made a mess of on my desk. Um, so this first one, uh, just up uh, yesterday uh, or Thursday, Afghanistan doomed from the start. And, I think it went up Tuesday. Yeah. It went uh, well, up on I, TAM Tuesday and then Julie Ponzi republished it at American Greatness yesterday. Is that it? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's where I got it from. Uh, uh, well, so uh, you, you, you start off by saying the... Um, this mission in Afghanistan was doomed from the beginning, and you don't hesitate from criticizing your old boss, President Bush. Uh, when did you start? Uh, oh, so by the way, I should mention that uh, that Lucretia and I a couple of days ago had Spencer Case on because I do you remember Spencer from the previous program five or six no. years ago? No, uh, he's a philosopher, uh, um, um, not a political philosopher. He's a standard academic philosopher, but more importantly, he served two tours in the army. Oh. Uh, one in Iraq and one in Afghanistan during the surge in 2009, 2010. And although he said he always supported the mission, he was starting to have a doubt then at training of the Iraqi, uh, sorry, the Afghan army and other things that were going on. When did you first start thinking? Because um, I think you say in the article, you, you initially at least supported the, uh, uh, the military missions. Uh, when did you first start having misgivings about whether this could possibly work? Uh, sometime after I left the Bush administration, and I, so sometime in the l mid to late 2000s. Yeah, right. you left in 2005, on. I think, right? Yeah. I left in 2005. Yeah. And I was a supporter of the original Iraq surge. Um, but by the time, uh, you know, I certainly by the time Obama was president, I was having doubts about all of this. Yeah. And I especially thought, which I say in the article, that Obama was being cynical by making a right war, wrong war comparison mm. and doing so so that he could say you know his, obama becomes the democratic nominee in 2004 overwhelmingly for one reason is the only guy on the stage with real national prospects who can say truthfully i was against this from the beginning yeah sorry, not in 2004 in 2008 right right um everybody else had voted for it and he was able and he, he was in tune with the base of the democratic party which had been against it at the time and was still against it 2008 but he didn't want to seem to the america this is my read he yeah. didn't want to seem to the American people like a pacifist. So he had to support some war or some use of force. And he thought, I'll just say Afghanistan is the right place to do this. And I, and I thought that was cynical at the time that he didn't really mean it. Now we're yeah. getting all these leaks that, oh, he really did want to pull out of Afghanistan and draw down. But the, the clever generals tricked him into, which I find, you, all you got to do is go back and look at his campaign rhetoric from 2008. Yeah. And he's saying, I want to invest more in Afghanistan. So it's not like Stanley McChrystal had to Svengali him into upping the mission, all you had to do was point to the president's own campaign speeches. Uh, uh, anyway, anyway, a president, if they have the backbone, can always stand up to the generals and say, do X, right? Yeah. Uh, usually when they don't, uh, it, when, when they don't get what they want, it's, it's for, well, not always, but it's often because they, they kind of cop out. They say, I want to do this. And then people around the sit room table, you know, here's my name drop up today. I've sat around that table many times. Um, so, well, if you got to think about this and you got to think about this and you got to think about this, and they're trying to wear you down yeah. and presidents let themselves get worn down and they go, all right, I guess we better keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It is a, a curious thing to me that right now, no one seems to be bringing up that extravagance of Obama's, right? I mean, you, you know, you're the people who said this was the good war. When did they change their mind? Right. Uh, I, I don't know what's going on there. Did but you somebody... really just say that, Steve? It's a what? surprise to you. Uh, <laughs> 
I mean, I, you know, I should be more cynical, but uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, yes. I mean, I knew at the time, uh, like Michael suggests, that this really was another backhanded way of attacking Bush. Oh, you wasted all this trouble in Iraq when Afghanistan was the real problem. So, no, I, I didn't buy that at the time. Yeah. Uh, but what I may say, surprising that uh, the critics of Biden aren't bringing this up. You know, the Republicans, if no one else, uh, ought to be bringing that up, among other things, I think. I don't know. Um, let's go back to other hard. things. Sorry, it's, hard go ahead. Repu- it's hard for Republicans when, you know, one yeah. of theirs is the one who got us into this mission in the first place. This yeah. is one of the things that I think really handicapped the party. I, I, I didn't I don't think appreciate this clearly enough at the time, but it's easy to see in hindsight that the party was really handicapped in 08 and 2012 by it, it felt that it owed an allegiance to George W. Bush because he was a two term Republican president and. You, to criticize the Iraq war, especially, or the Afghanistan war, was to criticize him, and that was thought to be foreboding. So you had candidate after candidate in 08 and 2012 double and triple down on these wars in a way that, you know, as Trump proved, really turned off a ton of middle America. Because yeah. how many times did we hear Trump, Trump was so critical uh, yeah. throughout the campaign season in 2015-16 of, of Iraq, especially, and every pundit. It seemed unanimous that you can't criticize a military operation, any military operation to a Republican audience because they are it's the hawkish party, but especially yeah. one begun under the auspices of a Republican president. But they, they turned out to be wrong about that yeah, because that was be the thing that, that, that Trump connected with most. But I want to ask you a really quick question. It seems a little bit off topic. Do you think that it's because Trump had criticized those things on the one hand, but that he he surrounded himself with those generals, somehow believing that those generals were not so much part of the swamp, that they were somehow uh, not as corrupt as the rest of the people, that, that they were people that he could trust. You were inside of it, so you, you had yeah. to see this. And, and it took me a while to realize, I think that's when I started to really look backwards and say, not only were these people are just horrible people that, you know, we thought were so wonderful, Mattis and so on, but they were giving him terrible advice and they really were as corrupt as they come. Not, not in the, the usual, you know, embezzling sense or, or, you know, feeding at the public trough, but just unable to see beyond their own immediate interests as part of the you know, military well, industrial complex, whatever you want to call it. True believers in this, ridiculous doctrine. I mean, one of the things that is kind of half forgotten, we we on the right especially have gotten used in the past five, six years to thinking that the, the deep state or the permanent government or the bureaucracy plus the military class and so on, all are in fundamental agreement and are pushing this stuff. I think that's a mistake that some on our side make. And it may be true today, but we if you go back and remember Bush's 43's first term, he faced an enormous amount of internal opposition from the State Department and the intelligence community, especially over the prospect of invading Iraq and nation building there. Um, they, they, they leaked on him constantly. They 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 they, try, they tried to do it the, the the honest way, meaning you know give him briefings and reports and things like this in a in a, in a closed door setting. And when they didn't get their way, they leaked on him constantly. And and they didn't get you know and the administration plowed ahead with it anyway. But um, it, back in those days, you know, the U.S. government establishment was not all in on these nation building wars the way it has been for the last five or 10 years. But the hmm. military didn't push back on him so much. Was that because it was just an opportunity to expand? Well, some did and got punished badly for it. If you remember General Eric Shinseki testifying in an open hearing, he gave this humongous number of what he thought it would cost, oh, what he thought yeah. it would take to occupy Iraq. 
his number turns out in hindsight to have been far closer to the truth than the rosy assumptions of the Bush administration going in. And he was basically fired for it. Yeah, well, they did fire Larry Lindsay from the Council of Economic Advisors, who said the invasion would cost $200 billion. <laughs> yeah, it was a very low number. Yeah, that was not yeah, even Yeah, but every payment. soldier's still wearing a beret, so there. Well, and see, Larry Lindsay, just to be, uh, he wasn't CEA. That was Glenn Hubbard. Larry was the NEC, the, the oh, Indian okay. White House advisor, the, the, the Gary Cohn job. The, the yeah, Cohn I always get those economic units. I know. I, I always they, wonder why are there two of them, but they're all. Yeah. Yeah. One of them actually, it, the, the CEA was created by congressional statute sometime after World War II. And the NEC is just a creation of the White House office by, I think, Bill Clinton created that. So it's a fairly recent creation. Yeah, I wondered why I didn't remember it from back like in the Reagan years and so forth. Uh, well, uh, well, all right, we can go on a long time. Uh, I remember Angelo pointing out, I don't know, sometime around 2005, 2006, that once we were in Iraq and we decide we're going to build a billion dollar embassy and we're going to do this. And we're going to do that. Oh, yeah. That a lot of the players then were career state department people, Bremer and you know, the, the agency for international development, which really yeah. ought to be put in a very deep hole and covered up with cement. Uh, and that's even before the last 20 years. Anyway. Um, well, let, let me do, did, did you, you know, in those years that you were there, did you hear, I mean, you said you get there was there was some pushback from the aspects of the bureaucracy, were there any people in the White House saying, I wonder if this is a bad idea or I wonder if we can carry this off? I, I, I don't remember any. I, in the Bush, you mean in 2002, three in the Bush yeah. White House, I don't remember anybody yeah. saying this was a bad idea. Uh, you know, and the, the, the biggest voice who should have would have been Dick Cheney, who made the soundest, most strategically uh, airtight, logical argument. Because remember how upset a certain portion of the party, especially the intellectuals, the, the, the foreign policy intellectuals, were at the outcome of 1991, that Saddam Hussein was still in power. Right. right. Criticized the Bush administration up and down. It was Dick Cheney himself who gave the argument as to why going on to Baghdad in 1991, deposing Saddam and trying to use U.S. power to replace the Iraqi regime was a terrible idea. And basically everything he said about 1991 is everything that went wrong 2003 <laughs> and beyond. And yet Dick Cheney was one of the biggest supporters of the second Iraq war and the rebuilding effort. I think, I think you had two... Thing. First of all, the, the, the senior most voice in opposition was Powell, but Powell questioned gently without being forceful. And he yeah. you know, famously decided to go all in and go up to the UN and give that speech on the WMDs in February of 2003, whatever. The other skeptic was Rumsfeld, and Rumsfeld played it like a bureaucratic game. His, mm. his goal was to demonstrate, this is my read of the situation, okay, was to demonstrate that a, a, a force of a half a million that such that fought, I think it was 550,000, but whatever, it was a really big force that fought the first Gulf War. Right. You could do it with a third or less than that the second yeah. time because of doctrinal difference. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is better quality weapons, better intelligence, right? The small, light, lethal, um, uh, nimble force could do it. That was his main interest, and he didn't have much of an interest in what came after. And he never, to the best of my knowledge, said to the president, I don't think this is going to work. But uh, he did, to the best of my recollection and observation at the time, fight a pretty tight bureaucratic fight to keep DOD assets as much out of it as possible. Now, obviously, you can't do that when you've got brigade combat teams in the country uh, fighting uh, engagements and and doing security operations and things like that. But Rumsfeld was never, ever invested in um, the stabilization of Iraq. And that's why Bush had to fire him in 2006. So 2006, they spent a whole year planning the surge. I wasn't there, but I know I've read right. the accounts. Took him a year to plan it out. And when it came time to implement it, Bush knew I, I can't have Don Rumsfeld be the Secretary of Defense because he will he won't agree with the policy. He won't say no. So he'll just use his powers to undercut the policy while pretending to implement it. Well it uh I mean two things to say about Rumsfeld. The first one is remember that he's the guy Richard Nixon put in in nineteen sixty nine as this young smart ex congressman to dismantle some of the great society programs. Yeah, and he did that well, right? He he killed off the Office of Economic Opportunity, I think, which is great. Uh, and so he wouldn't be interested in nation building, having seen it fail at home 20 years before. Uh, but, uh, you know, but his um, th- this also is sort of forgotten from the discussions going on right now. Rumsfeld's strategic doctrine, I think, was the right one for what you're saying needs to be done. In other yeah. words, have forces that can go in and thump people quickly with a small force or whatever force is necessary, but not the big unit war, not Westmoreland Vietnam style. Right. Uh, and, and that brings me to um, – uh, a devil's advocate question Question I want to ask you. In the middle of your piece, you talk about how, you know, we chase these guys, uh, uh, bin Laden and all the rest of Tora Bora, and, you know, we bomb some, but we didn't go in for the kill. Well, that was John Kerry's criticism. Yeah. Uh, are, are, do you think, I mean, was John Kerry right? I mean, I, I said the other day, yeah. is this a blind squirrel finding an acorn <laughs> or a stop clock because Kerry's a nitwit and an idiot? But that criticism, though, forget Kerry. I mean, that criticism, though, uh, you, you think is correct. Yeah, I do think it's correct. Yeah. And, I, I, and I still think 20 years later, we as an American people don't know what happened there. We don't know. Yeah. They've never they've never said uh, and they've never been forced to tell. And because it's embarrassing. Right. It is. It's a failure. Something somebody failed. Somebody made a bad decision or did something wrong. And rather than own up, they've just been quiet about it. And Congress just, just long ago. Uh, decided to let it pass, never really took it up as a question. You know, you, you need to answer for this. No, no one ha- ever has. And I, at this point, I'm starting to wonder if anyone ever will. I assume no one ever will. Go so ahead. I, I think the problem is, is that you, you can't apply the Congress that might have been paying some attention in 2005, let's say 2008, even 2012 to the Congress that's there today. The Congress that's there today is just made of a bunch of nitwits, twits, idiots, and ideologues of the very worst kind. And I mean, I, I, I read what you say about how corrupt we are if we can't 
fire the people responsible for this, fire the people responsible for it from the beginning and fire the people responsible for it from for responsible for the most recent failures and tragedies, which uh, I'm disinclined to agree to the same extent that you think that it, the failure was going to be bad and it's only just a little bit worse under Biden. I, I don't think it could have been any any worse, any possibly any well, worse. I, what I said, just to be clear, what I said in the piece, has Trump, had Trump done it exactly this way, it would have turned out the same way. But he, he would not have done it exactly this way. And the, re- the reason is obvious is that he went in, he campaigned on getting out of Afghanistan. He went into office intending to get out of Afghanistan. And four years later, we were still there. And a big part of that was him hesitating because he feared an outcome like this and yeah. looking for a way to somehow get out and avoid this. And that wasn't just as big a part of it that he didn't have the support of the, the military, the State Department, uh, the whole complex to do the planning that he knew that to say, yes, yes, sir. And we'll figure out the best way to do it and we'll get it done. That's possible. Look, I, I'll use this analogy. I've used you it were in, there in emails a couple of times. Uh, I didn't put it in print, but I, I wonder what Steve thinks of this. Right. Do you remember the 1992 L.A. riots? Oh, yeah. One of the reasons they got so out of hand. And I read this in a number of places. So I think this is fairly true, is that the LAPD chief was a was a very conservative, old school, you know, William Parker style dragnet L.A. cop named Daryl yeah. Gates. Daryl Gates, right. Really angry that the political class of the city of Los Angeles and Los Angeles County and, and, and the state, to some extent, were blaming his officers for all these troubles. And when the riot broke out, he apparently gave a hold back order. He wanted to stick it to the politicians and say, see what life is like without us. And he assumed yeah. they would come on bended knee and say, oh, golly, we're, we're, we apologize for being mean to you. Please save us. And I wonder, I see this, I see lots of speculation to this effect from people who are not idiots saying that it could be that some American officials decided to just botch this deliberately say, oh, okay, Biden, this is what you want. We'll just give you what you want. Mm -hmm. We're not going to plan it. We're just going to, oh, you gave us a dumb order. We'll just fulfill the dumb order and you can take the blame for what happens. I don't know, but the right. I believe that if I didn't believe so much in the corruption of our senior (laughs) military leaders these days, that's my problem. What you say makes perfect sense, Michael. But the problem is, is I know the level of corruption and, and I would venture a guess that there probably isn't uh, uh, more than uh, 3% of the officers 06 and above who didn't vote for Biden. Yeah, that's probably right. I mean, that's the problem. I don't see how it they wouldn't want have been just hard. like just like George Stephanopoulos should have humiliated Biden beyond all belief and didn't do it. Well, it, it, right? Consider the source. Uh, well, but that's my hard. point: is the source is the same yeah. in the military these days. These are guys that were told their entire career stay out of politics, and the moment the Biden administration says attack Tucker Carlson, they they. They went against everything that they had ever been taught from an ethical, moral, and uh, military point of view and tweeted out stupid things about Tucker Carlson. They're so corrupt. And sorry, I have the insider track on this. I see it every day. Um, and that's my problem with – I still think it might, what you say might be true – Well, you know, two uh, thoughts on this. One is uh, um, you can't know for sure, of course. I think it's a sure bet that if nothing else, President Trump, if he was still in office, would simply call up or get a Zoom call with the the Taliban people and he would hold up a postcard of Soleimani. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, that was Trump's style. He's even said he would do this here in the last few days. And I think they would believe that kind of threat. 
Uh, and then second, uh, that point about the military, uh, what they may or may not have thought or deliberately calculated, and I'm no expert on these things, but I'm inclined to believe the person who told me the other day, you know, three or four A-10 warthogs could have slowed down the Taliban really easily, right? Uh, not to mention some other things that could have been done. But once we stop air support or any air operations, um, yeah, that's a- It would have been very, it, it, look- I'm no evacuation planner, but yeah. it doesn't take expertise to know what the right thing to do was. That is to say, if you're determined to get out, you believe the mission's failed and can't be accomplished, right? First of all, you don't even make an announcement. You just right. quietly right. order. You just start yep. pulling civilians out one, you yep. know, in an orderly fashion. And then if people ask, you say, hey, you know, it's an ordinary thing. People move around. They go to this job. Right. They go to that job. Right? You just dissemble about that. There's, you don't have yeah. to tell your enemy, oh, we're getting out. Come attack us, right? Yeah. And, when, and, and so on. Uh, you, you ship as much equipment home as you can. You destroy what you can't ship. The absolute last thing to go would be, the, would be the military providing force protection. And the last base to close would be the most fortified, which is Bagram Air Base. Right. They did it in the exact opposite order, which... Yeah. Uh, which shows either that they are complete idiots and don't know what they're doing or that this was a deliberate to attempt a deep state, for lack of a better term, attempt to humiliate the president. I, I don't know what happened. Hmm. But I mean, if we're I, I think there is a third option and that's somewhere between complete idiot and the people giving the orders were completely corrupt. Do I, I cannot believe that the 101st Airborne didn't know exactly what it was they needed to do under those circumstances. I have to ask, how, how, I don't see how anybody benefited from this. I, I, I don't either. Schadenfreude against Biden, if you believed in the mission, you know, and, and, I, and I, I don't, I can't discount the fact, I think it is highly probable that lots and lots of people thought, they, they believed in the original mission was still possible 20 years later. And so, and they, you know, they believed that these structures they had built had some kind of permanence. And had well, some let me, kind I, of think that's, I think that's a very good point. Well, let me run uh, this argument by you, Michael, which is, um, uh, well, I think it's a bad argument, but I want to ask you one particular variation of it. You know, we've have, we still have nearly 40,000 troops in Korea, 60, well, I think, I think Korea is 28. But, 28. All right. But it's still, yeah. a, you know, it's still it's a, a non-negligible number of people. Now, there's no shooting going on there. Yeah. Uh, and then and Germany. Since 1953. Right. And and that because they're there, if they leave, who knows what would happen? And we'd have to go back and be back. Uh, but I was surprised to see the force deployment chart the other day that we have. <laughs> it'll be a fun question for you. We have 12,000 troops in Italy. Yeah. I don't know why we need 12,000 troops in Italy. Is it the service, the Sixth Fleet that comes in the Naples? Mostly, I don't know. It's mostly the Sixth Fleet and the air wings that support the Sixth Fleet to keep okay. the, you know, a, a threat against the Med. Um, okay. Okay. All right. I guess it makes sense. It is the most I... desirable of all PCS uh, Oconus moves. That's another okay. reason. Okay. It is a... Plum assignment. Now you could okay. say it, you could ask what navy actually threatens the central med at this time, and it's hard to answer that, right? Because <laughs> you know there aren't really any big navies floating around out there that can challenge us. But that's fundamentally the reason why yeah. we're in Italy and, and have been in Italy all of these years. Whereas the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain, the Iranian navy really is a threat to close the Strait of Hormuz right. if the United States Navy isn't there and. That would be whether, no matter how much we're drilling at home and more is better as far as I'm concerned, that's still a problem. Uh, yeah. Even if the United States is a net exporter of energy, you don't want the Iranians to have complete say or, or, or China through Iran to have complete say over that choke point. 
So what I want to do, I want to pivot to another whole uh, subject, uh, but, but from the middle of your article. And it's the part where you discuss how our advisors to Iraq and also Afghanistan and helping them rewrite or write their own constitution said, oh, yeah, by all means, put Sharia law into your constitution. Yeah. And, you know, you uh, and, and I keep saying, oh, well, here's why this prompts a memory. Uh, I remember back when podcasting was in its infancy, I'm say around 2005 or so, our late friend Peter Schramm had our hero Harry Jaffa on. And Jaffa was looking at all this saying, well, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing. He said it much more elegantly, of course, but what a blunder of our State Department to let them put Sharia law in their constitutions. Is The problem in the Middle East is that they don't know the Declaration of Independence. And what's worse is our own State Department doesn't either. In fact, I found it. Here it is. It's a little scratchy, but bear with it. And you'll see what I mean. The, the kicker, of course, from my point of view is that uh, they never had an enlightenment over there, so they don't know about the Declaration of Independence. Well, yeah, right, right. Uh, so well, they didn't know about it. We're forgetting. We're we're giving it up. <laughs> they don't know, and we're giving it up. So we'll be in darkness forever. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, what can be done? Uh, well, uh, we could go on uh, telling the truth until the, the water closes over our heads, and then, then that's the end. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, okay, I mean that's not unreasonable, but uh, that's not practical. Well, anyway, I would, I, would, I would go further than Jaffa though in saying it's not just that they don't know it; it's that even if you could explain it to them with the precision of a Harry Jaffa, I, I just don't see Afghans accepting the principles mm. of the Declaration. Right. So the problem with putting Sharia into a constitution like this is it makes the thing neither fish nor fowl. It's not really you're going there to liberalize the institutions and make them democratic in a, in a, in a way that we would recognize. It isn't really that. And then they put Sharia in because they say, well, we're, we're doing this as, uh, I was going to say concession to, maybe that's the wrong word, but as a sign that we have a realistic understanding of the conditions on the ground here, that people really believe in Islam and this is what they want. This just shows that we're broad-minded, that we're not just imposing our values on them, but that we incorporate Sharia. Yeah. But it's a kind of internal self-contradiction. So if you're a real believer in Sharia, then you believe all the other presuppositions of liberal constitutionalism in which this Sharia is inserted, I, I think that, that, you, that you would that say that it's goes, fundamentally illegitimate. And if I think it goes a little deeper than that. I, you'd say Sharia has no place in it. I think it goes deeper. So we had a dean at one of the universities. I was the dean of the social science, social and behavioral sciences, who was a radical feminist, and she one of her areas of expertise was female genital mutilation. But whenever she would go to Saudi Arabia or whatever, and then when she would come home for a while just to show how whatever she was, she would wear a burqa. Yeah. Well, well I, yeah. like you don't need I to mean, wear. So I'm cultural. I, I am culturally sensitive to. Mm. So I, I think that was it more than than anything. We have to I show mean, not only that we're imposing our values, but we're culturally sensitive because they didn't understand how god awful Sharia is. Even in Saudi Arabia, full on burqa is not required. Just a, a head. No, scarf that's what I'm saying. She, yeah. Let's let, let me let me prove to all of you how how culturally sensitive I am. Oh, she was just showing off. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, right. I actually think putting Sharia in the Constitution is just showing off too. Well, <laughs> in a funny sort of way. Well, no, you understand that. You understand the deeper point I was trying to drive at here. If you don't, it's the it said it's the point of equality, the, the natural right. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Basis of equality, rightly understood, is the foundation of any serious uh, theory of self-governing democratic republics. And, to, okay, uh... And this sort of brings me on to, I mean, we can talk all day about this and we probably will revisit it several times. Uh, actually, well, no, this could derail things, but I, I do have a look yeah, at that. Yeah. So let me just say to some parts of the world sooner to some later, in this case, much, much later, the monkish ignorance and superstition yeah, right. that men have persuaded uh. to bind themselves. Our founding fathers understood you couldn't just take the principles of the Declaration and replant them oh, everywhere because okay, of monkish right. ignorance. I mean, it's so simple. I don't even know yeah. why we get into these uh, sort of uh, peripheral arguments. It's so simple. Nobody ever thought. Be- I, no, it's very simple why we get into these arguments. Or because people, say, it, it, as soon as you say this isn't going to work anywhere, the immediate counteraction is that's racist. Yeah. Period. So what are you saying? If people are at a lower level of political development and they're incapable of this, you're a racist. You're an Islamophobe. And they use that tactic to great effectiveness against any kind of criticism the Bush administration did and every administration since. And And Bush, the Bush administration bowed down to it like the, I can't see the Bush administration administration were the early adopters. They were the true, many of them were the true believers in that. Well, you think of Bush's second inaugural address in right. 2005, but, you know, our our mission is to end tyranny in the world and, you know, other speeches, all written by Michael Gerson, I'm pretty sure, who um, I've met a few times, and I'll just, that's all I will say. <laughs> um, anyhow, uh, yeah, they were all in on all that. And so the people who said he was uh, the recrudescence of Woodrow Wilson were not wrong, I think, in a lot of ways. And okay. they're still does all any, in on it. They're still all in any- on it. Yeah. Does anybody remember watching an episode of that sh- uh, television series 24 starred um, Kiefer uh, Sutherland? Yeah. Yeah. Kiefer Sutherland, where uh, there's a nuclear attack on uh, Los Angeles and there's a neighbor that's a Muslim and, you know, the, 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 the very woke uh, other neighbors are, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're not going to discriminate against this nice Muslim neighbor, but he's actually turns out to be a terrorist, which was the exact opposite of everything that the Bush administration was plugging over and over and over again. Whatever you do, don't think that Muslims in this country participate in any way in this terrorism. Mm. You're right. They were the first true believers. Yeah. But I, I thought it was nice to see that certain elements of society, even in Hollywood back in the day, recognized what nonsense that was. Yeah, well, they took a lot of grief for that, as I recall. Did anyway, they? Okay. I, I want to. Sorry. I, I was just going to say that. Anymore. Uh, By the way, only a couple of years after that, a Tom Clancy novel called The Sum of All Fears which oh, yeah. was, had a Muslim terrorist plot at its center, was made it's into Nazis. a Hollywood movie, and they had to rework it to make the villains get this. Russian Nazis, right? Nazis, right. Yes, of course. Russian Nazis. I mean, they're everywhere. 1945 never happened. It's like yeah. that episode of The Twilight Zone, he lives. <laughs> the big reveal at the end is Hitler is still, he's still out there. Yeah, and uh, I, I, you know, uh, I don't know why James Cameron gets a pass for having the bad guys in True Lies be Crimson Jihad. I mean, you could never do that today. (laughs) 
was okay. That was meant to be like, well, these are these aren't ordinary Muslim radicals. These are like extra radicals. So we're giving the normal Hezbollah Hamas types. Eh, they're okay. Yeah, this, this Crimson Jihad group is the real problem. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, it was cartoonish even then. But yeah. you know, okay. I think there were complaints then from the Council of Arab is whatever. It's no, care. Yeah, whatever the main it. pressure group is this care, the Council yeah. on American Islamic Relations, which that's it. It seems to have yeah. faded into relative obscurity, but it was pretty effective. Yeah, you know, using American openness against us and morally, you know, it's sort of the same tactics the left uses constantly now. Yeah, Um, yeah. not total obscurity. They were they were backing something our good friend Omar said not too long ago. So she's exactly their type of. uh, Oh, exactly. Their type. All right. So uh, we may come back to this some other time. Uh, Do see Michael and listeners. uh, I'll link it in show notes along with your uh, pieces, Michael. Um, Matt Continenti. You know, I like Matt. He's got an article today saying, you know, don't think this is over. We're going to have to go back sometime. And, you know, that's a something to play out. Anyway, uh, the reason I brought up the whole Declaration of Independence and uh, and is I want to pivot to this other argument you're having, uh, a very genteel, very polite argument. I'm a little surprised at how polite you are. Not really. I get why. But you're having this argument. Uh, for listeners who don't know about this, um, you can read the articles. But uh, Michael, well, I should let you explain it, but you, you decided to take on some of the conservative critics of the 1776 commission, you know, a report written largely by many of our best friends. Yep. And it's, you know, the Chronicles of Culture, uh, Chronicles Magazine crowd, people who call themselves paleoconservatives um, and people who have never really cared for Lincoln, never cared for the Declaration of Independence, never cared much for our great teacher, Harry Jaffa. And you are sort of very patiently and politely engaging with them. Unlike, for example, I think your well-deserved smacks at David French, uh, which you know have the I would say the harsher side of Michael Anton. I put it that way. Uh, anyway, what's going on here? What do you, what, what do listeners want to? So what goes, do you want listeners to know? It goes way back to um, you. You'll remember this, my late lamented blog, uh, co-blog. Actually, I, I wrote it with a lot of other people in 2016, the Journal of American Greatness. Oh yeah. In the early days of the Trump phenomena, where we were trying to make you know, pro-Trump arguments, and and I said several times on that blog, look, the paleocon's got some big stuff right that Trump is with them on. And we need to acknowledge that. And a couple hmm. of people noticed it and said, wait, what is this? These, you know, because nobody, we were pseudonymous, but a lot of people figured they knew who some, at least some of us were. And they could see right. a Claremont imprint on it. So they thought, this is extraordinary if these Claremont people are actually saying that paleos have gotten something right. And I, I've been keeping up with that uh, ever since. You know, I wrote, I wrote a whole, not a chapter, but a section of my book after I make the declaration arguments and I say all the limits of it and stuff. And then I have a, a subsection just called South bashing question mark, which is to say is look, the fact that I said, I don't think you're right about this. Does not mean that I hate you and I want to tear down your statues and, you know, go sandblast <laughs> stone mountain? The answer is no, we have all this area where common cause anyway. So I, I've been tilling the soil for a while and this guy, and, and I've noticed too, one of the most cantankerous of the, of the paleos, Paul Goffrey, who's the sort of their version, their Harry Jaffa. Cause let's face it, <laughs> Their dislike of Jaffa was earned. And this is that Jaffa went after them, hammer and tongs. It's not like he was this shrinking violet over in the corner and then they just went and started whacking him for no purpose. He would just throw, just direct un- unbelievable artillery their way. So he got, you know, he, he got punched back. That's the way of the world. And Gottfried can be pretty um, pugilistic too. Yes. Gottfried, of all people, starts writing kind of favorable things and conciliatory. I'm thinking, all right, if, if Paul Gottfried is coming around, this is a new world. So this is great. And and then what happens is Chronicles published, um, actually, and first of all, Gottfried had somebody named Daryl Dow, who I've never heard of, review my book in Chronicles. 
which was a very positive review. Um, uh, you know, there's some other things too. I've gotten to know the people who run the American Conservative. I'm very friendly with Helen Andrews and some yeah. other people. Emil Doak was a Lincoln Belt, but all that's the backstory. So Chronicles then publishes this piece by a guy I never heard of named Brian McClanahan. McClanahan, I think that's right. Yeah, I never heard of him either, but yeah. Right, just savagely attacking the 1776 Commission in what I thought were very unfair, but unwi also unwise terms. So I thought he got the facts wrong, and I just thought, you know, this is a this is a dumb attack to launch at this time. Whatever flaws you see in the 1776 Commission, keep in mind, this was a commission uh, uh, ordered by the President of the United States, published under the auspices of the President of the United States, that says America is a fundamentally good country and we should be proud of our history, at a moment when every single institution in America, I mean everyone, was saying this country is evil and needs to be burned to the ground. And, and, and here comes somebody on the right saying, ah, it's all trash. He's basically metaphysically agreeing with the 1619 Project, and I said so. And that, yeah. that to, to, the, to your point that I've been polite, well, that article wasn't super polite. I, I beat him <laughs> up somewhat. Um, and then we've gone back and forth. He's responded. Gottfried's responded a couple times. And, you know, I want to keep the dialogue going and, and as polite as possible, in part because I keep hearing from people, paleo people, uh, from, let's say, Chronicle, ISI, American Conservative, people now I've gotten to know over the past four or five years. So these are friends of mine, but they're writing to me saying, you know what, we find this dialogue useful. We appreciate what you're trying to do. It all makes sense. And I, I you know, I'm going to keep going because of that. And I just think when the regime is coming for all of our necks, when my own view is I agree with the paleos on immigration. I agree with them on trade. I have my marginal differences on foreign policy. But if you had to ask me in the context of 2021, what's the saner foreign policy for America? Is it something like a neocon would have been pushing in 78? Or is it something like TAC is pushing in 2021? There's no question. It's much closer to the latter than to the former yeah. for right now. So, and, you know, our good friends, Angelo, would certainly agree with that, even if Angelo is more hawkish than they would be. Um, he, he would agree with a lot of their critiques about uh, uh, overextension. Um, our, you know, West certainly agrees with most of this. The late Pat Garrity, I, I, I hate to speak for him, but I think he would agree with a lot of this. Yeah. Um, Claremont was never all in for the democracy wars, to say the least. Oh, then, I, you know, I just sent an email to Ryan the other day saying you should go back and grab excerpts from some of the editorials Charles was writing, mm -hmm. some of Tom West's pieces in the CRB, and also Angelo's pieces saying this yeah. is unserious what we're doing, that all have been fully vindicated, oh, uh, yeah. I think, right? Um, well, I had two vectors I wanted to take there to get us back into sort of political ideas. Wait, I, just, I, I, I understated so, it somewhat to say Claremont was never all in on the democracy wars. Claremont was divided, I think, over the response to 9-11 and how far, you know, we had some people, we got to go, you know, this far, and some people, we should go less far. Claremont was utterly united on the folly of democracy wars, though, utterly. Yeah. Nobody, nobody, yes. including Jaffa himself, Mr. Declaration of Independence, said, yeah. this isn't going to work. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the, the By the way, I, <laughs> I do want to stick this in because I like it. Uh, Lucretia said to me... I mean, I, you know, you know what a paleoconservative. Where did this term come from? You know, paleoconservative, and and does this mean that they just don't cook their meat, or what? <laughs> no, it's not the paleo diet. They also eat a lot of kale. Same difference. Yeah, the uh, my my, you know, I just finished this book on Stan Evans coming out next spring, and he said one time, a paleoconservative is a conservative who's been mugged by a neoconservative. <laughs> There's something to that, as usual with Stan's quips. Uh, but the, I want to take two vectors from this point, which is part of what's going on with the paleoconservatives crowd is they don't like 
like Russell Kirk, they, they, the all men are created equal sticks in their craw from the Declaration. And they think that um, we're unable to contain the very precise and limited understanding of right. equality that, uh, that the founders had against the egalitarian urges of our time. And then, of course, that goes the other direction. So there are conservatives who've never liked it. But then uh, we also have uh, the liberals who uh, reject it as well. Uh, and so, uh, let me, so I'll do this question for you. I've, I've been saying this for a long time to all of our friends. Uh, so he, here is the difficulty or the challenge of, I'll call it the Claremont position. Um, and it is that, uh, it, you know, Jaffa's understanding of this was so profound and so layered, hard to explain to uh, your average citizen on the street. In other words, I, the way I put the challenge sometimes to, you know, Tom Klingenstein and others is, is look, there is a problem when to understand your political message, you need to have a master's degree from Claremont Graduate School. But you don't. I don't understand that argument, Steve. Yeah, I don't, I don't know get that it's that hard. Oh, go ahead and beat me up. I just, you know, I just want to throw it out as a challenge. Uh, but you asked Mike first. So I'll, I'll, Michael, I'll, I'll let Michael respond to I, I just, it first. Because to the average American, I put this in one of the pieces that I wrote recently. You know, the playground version of all men are create equal is you're not the boss of me. Something exactly. any ten, something any ten year old child understands, right? It's yeah. like okay, or, or as the immigrant lady says in the man who shot Liberty Valance, right? Yeah, yeah. you know, I, I'll follow I'll follow a lawful order that I had some participation in making, but you're not just going to boss me around because you're my boss because you're my natural superior. I don't care if you're smarter than I am. I don't care if you're richer than I am. I don't care if you're you know stronger, have bigger muscles, but you're not the boss of me. And so there's a spirited component to equality that see the found so. The paleos, I, I don't find them quoting Tocqueville much, but I did in one of my pieces because there's that yeah. wonderfully profound passage in book two where he says equality essentially eats itself. The more equal the society gets, the more equality mad the people within it get, and the more the more they see any kind of distinction is intolerable. And that's kind of the core paleo argument. This, this is just a camel's nose under the tent. Once yeah. you have any... What which if any basis of the regime is 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 openly said to be equality, people will just go insane and insist on complete leveling. Um, now, on the one hand, you'd have to say, it, you know, they have a point in that it certainly seems to have turned out this way. That is to say, in America, twenty twenty one, that that regime that uh, dynamic is playing out. The question that I don't that I reject, or at least I think I reject, is they say this is inevitable. This was bound to happen. There's no possible way to have a regime based on equality before the law, uh, government by consent, but uh, free flourishing of talents and unequal outcomes. You can't have it. To which I say, first of all, it's a practical matter. I don't know that that's true because we did manage to have it for many decades, even a couple of centuries. And second of all, when you when you just examine the philosophic argument for equality and the real alternatives, which I tried to do in a very long piece for American greatness, you know, the fundamental question for a philosopher, which I don't claim to be, but, or just for anyone has to be, first of all, is it true or is it not true? Yeah. Right. Is it true? So if you want to say equality has this bad effect and yet somehow, you know, the, the alternative arguments, hereditary aristocracy, um, the, the superior, the fundamental superiority of the philosopher, which is the classical argument, the Nietzschean argument, these all have serious problems. Actually, the classical argument, I think, does not have a serious problem, but culminates in a, in a sort of practical effect that if the only fundamental difference between types of human beings with the classics is the philosopher and the non-philosopher, and they admit that philosophers 
can't rule or will only rule by chance. Essentially, what they're saying is all other kinds of aristocracy are fake. And so you're stuck with some kind of concession to natural equality. Not, not necessarily, but, you know, Plato doesn't recommend the regime of the American founders, but he recommends something closer to it than to hereditary caste aristocracy or to whatever the heck it is that Nietzsche is talking about with the overman, which I tried to summarize to the best of my ability, but Nietzsche is always fun, fun as he is to read. I've always found his argument somewhat weird and wanting in the end of the day. Okay, Lucretia, go. (laughs) You made, the problem is, is that you started off strong, but then you made Steve's argument, which is you need a master's degree from Claremont in order to understand the argument. You don't have to go down the road of philosopher versus gentleman, all those, those you know, uh, intellectual ramblings to get to the really simple point. I ask students when they say, you know, Jefferson was a hypocrite, all the, the nonsense arguments they give, I just ask them, so do you or do you not believe all men are created equal? Do you believe that some people by nature are born to rule and some people are not? And I'm not talking about leadership. I'm not talking about, and I I make sure I, you know, say that term as snotty as I possibly can. And I, you know, honestly, do you see among the human species, this was the simplest part of Jaffa's argument for years. Do you see among the human species the 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 rider with the spurs and the the human equivalent of a horse well, with a saddle on his back? Do I make this argument and, and all the I time. And I push and push and push, and I finally get somewhere. Yeah, I make this argument all the time. And I don't think you need a master's degree to understand that simple point, and then you build on it. Nature singles out uh, with certain species a, a natural ruler. Does not do that with the human species. Now, what the paleo will say is. Um, well, you know, there's always going to be a, a mass of sort of, you know, unsophisticated, uh, you know, not particularly intelligent, not adept at ruling people. And then there will be these high examples of greatness, like George Washington. Um, the people and, Jefferson called the natural aristocrats. Right. And then to them, those people are naturally entitled to rule, to which I, the response to that has to be, well, naturally entitled, are they better at it? Of course they're better at it. And so what you want is a system that guides them into the offices of government, as Jefferson says. But if they're naturally entitled, then that devolves ultimately into a claim of hereditary aristocracy and their kids are going to be idiots. I'm sorry. Or, or if not, not, you know, I mean, everybody knows that regression to the mean is a thing. So you can make <laughs> the greatest person among us a duke. Let's say America collapses tomorrow, which seems unfortunately not outside the realm of possibility. And there's chaos everywhere. And we do, we do, politics reforms itself exactly the way Aristotle says, right? We, we coalesce into little groups to avoid uh, getting killed, to protect ourselves. And we appoint someone among us who we think is the greatest among us. Hey, lead us for a while. And we give him some hereditary title. It's a fact that his kids or his grandkids or his great grandkids or somebody are going to be idiots and aren't going to be worthy of it. And we're <laughs> going to be stuck obeying these people. And and it also means that if, you know, your kids and your grandkids will be stuck in whatever low caste they were born into under this arrangement. And even if they're really talented, they can't get out. Do you think that's fair? Nobody wants that for their children, I don't think. I, I turned to a liberal colleague of mine at the beginning of the primary season in 2016 and said, can you honestly tell me that in a country of 330 million people, that the two best possible candidates are Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton? 
I said, when did we turn into a hereditary aristocracy here? Oh, well, 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 we're not that. But of course, that's exactly what that means, right? And 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 that's where the the I guess the paleo conservatives get it completely wrong. It's the corruption of the system along the way, not the problem with the system in the beginning. Which is the point. I I have to um, give you credit. That's the point you make in your article that it's the corruption of the system mostly by the progressives but you know some other elements of german thought and whatnot that come in and destroy the original understanding of equality but i don't think steve's right that you need a master's degree to understand no, that I, well I, you're me, not the boss of me as a good you know nor a normal a normal american truck driver in the middle of the country without with, without a college education and who, who routinely votes and you know watches some news uh, who's not a sophisticated person, doesn't have a mastery. If you explain it to him that way, like, hey, listen, rejecting the principle of equality means in, in America, 2021, especially, it doesn't mean your landed duke is going to be your, maybe that would be better for you if there's somebody nearby who you knew and could trust. A rejection of equality means you're going to be ruled by Goldman Sachs and Silicon Valley VCs. Those are your superiors in this regime, and they're going to boss you around and tell you what to do and not, and and not the, care about the outcome. Or the local. No, no, right. immediately, no, I hate that. Yeah. I might go but, a step further and say that there's almost a instinctual understanding of that in those classes of people before you explain it to them. And then if you can just articulate it to uh, to them in some way they can wrap their head around, then they embrace it fully. Ah, uh, okay. So here, all right. And it's let only me... after you have a master's degree that your head gets all screwed up and you get it all wrong. <laughs> well, that's what... Unless it's from Claremont. Was it, was it Jaffa used to use that phrase about a trained incapacity to think? That's most college graduates these days. Uh, look, let me, uh, I won't say defend oh, myself. the famous but... Orwell quote, right? Which is, there are some things so dumb oh, yeah. that only an intellectual could believe them. Right. Let me let me try what I'm saying in a different way. I make a historical argument. Look, I'm in heated agreement with you guys because well, I learned from the same people and the same arguments you did. But... Let me give you the historical argument. With this passing observation, by the way, is how few political leaders speak, even just say something as simple as, uh, you know, what the American tradition means is, is that we're not the boss of you. You know, you're the boss. Okay. Um, the last person who was halfway decent at that was Reagan, and even he didn't get the argument complete, I don't think. All right. Here's here's the uh, uh, an objection. I'll do this like Tommy Aquinas. Uh we have Lincoln, the greatest defender of all the principles we're talking about. And yet within just a few years, a couple of decades, you had the idea of natural right being swept away by the paleoconservatives of the day in the late 19th century, who were the so-called social Darwinists. But you read uh, William Graham Sumner, and he's attacking natural right. Uh, and then you get to the progressive era, and the progressives, which who are in both parties, Theodore Roosevelt and people around him, they swept it all away with hardly uh, a, a trouble or any any objection from anybody. There was no or almost no intellectual resistance to that project. And so there's what I mean about uh, that. So let me let me refine the question and stop talking this way, which is uh, the principles can be true and correct and profound. But their vindication in real political life is difficult and rare and hard to do. That's yeah. what I'm really trying to say. I mean, isn't that the classical argument? Don't yeah. try to rationalize politics because we know. I mean, Plato and Aristotle. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and Jaffa's argument with Peter Schramm. I should find that and you know repost it. I think I may have a recording somewhere. His argument is essentially: Look, we're not even getting this right at home. How are we going to do this abroad? To yeah. go full circle to where we were 30 minutes ago. My read of the classics, which is obviously through Jaffa and Strauss and their students, is that. 
they think they have discovered the true political principles. We know. We know what the true political principles are. We cannot operationalize them because human yeah. beings are too irrational. So you do the best you can to take the inherent irrationality of the human species and you sand the rough edges off. I mean, to me, this is the great the lesson of the Plato's Republic versus Plato's laws. The Republic lays out the truth and then culminates in saying, yeah, we can't really, it doesn't exactly say this, but the, the lesson you're supposed to take from it, I think is, yeah, you can't make this regime happen in real life. The laws yeah. is, we could probably do what we're saying here, but it's second best. It is not what tr reason truly demands. And I would go back to something Steve said about there was no intellectual pushback um, during the progressive era. And I think there's two main explanations for them. One, that the, the progressives were very good at the politics of envy before such a thing even existed, of course, um, even though it was completely hypocritical and so on. But also the <laughs> that they, they understood very early on that you could pretend to have that natural aristoi. You could pretend to play off on the mm. idea of, uh, of of training and educating the natural uh, aristoi. Not, yes. of course, in the they, way that they Jefferson called it said it. Scientific expertise was their scientific expertise. Their perversion remember, of it. Right. Things like the, the like the discipline of economics didn't even exist prior yeah. to the progressives inventing it. Read, you know, Tom, what's his name's book? Um, a liberal. I'm so bad at those things. You'll remember who I'm talking <laughs> well, about. Well, yeah. Liberal reformers. I mean, he has a whole great oh, Thomas Leonard, right, yes. Yeah, yeah. Thomas let's, Leonard. Right. Let's also not forget um, the following, but, that the progressives were great liars. In other words, yeah. they didn't say, they did, at least the only the intellectuals told the truth. The intellectuals said the, prince, the natural right principles of the American founding are garbage and have to go. The politicians knew that's not yeah. going to sit well with the American people. So they said, everything we're doing is completely consistent with your right. understanding of uh, you know what you think your rights are, and they were they were lying. They were they were they were painting a fake continuity onto it to get to gain public acceptance. As for the which is what they're still doing today, by the way. Yeah, if you absolutely. Ask me. It's a time honored strategy. I mean, you know, they, yep. you learn this from well, Augustus, right? You say yeah. the Roman Republic is still alive, and I'm not really the emperor. I'm just the I just the guy who gets to speak first in the Senate. That's all. Well, um, let, let there, me there let me push back, and I, I, I very quickly, I haven't studied it with care, but. You know, there were some uh, anti-progressive politicians, in particular Senator Elihu Root, while, yeah. and there are a few others. And and let's not forget Calvin Coolidge was an anti-progressive yes. and, and spoke, uh, you know, Silent Cal actually spoke right. fairly eloquently against the progressive project. I guess looking back, we should wish that he had been more politically effective in, in knocking it down. But there was there was some opposition. It wasn't like they just they just rolled over us without. Uh, it feels that way, but I, yeah. I don't think it's entirely true to say that they just rolled over us without any opposition. Yeah, it, it, no, that, that's right. I mean, uh, I always uh, I, I came to the conclusion a while ago that one reason the left decided to call him Silent Cal is because they hoped no one would actually pay attention to anything <laughs> he actually said. Right, last president to write all his own speeches. Let, let me give one last particular aspect of this question because we're running a bit long. Uh, and, and I've never asked you about this, Michael, but it's to uh, and you make a reference to it in one of these articles. Um, the Jaffa-Kendall argument, not about equality, but about Kendall's critique of Crisis of the House Divided. Remember, he ends that famous review mm -hmm. by saying, this is a great book, but I worry that what's being called for here is a series of Lincolns, one after the other, to get us through a crisis. And in other words, it places too high a demand on American statesmanship to have somebody of Lincoln's caliber. 
And that brings us to, and I don't, you know, we can go on a long time about this, and I don't know if you want to or not, and we can't right now anyway. Uh, but, you know, we have uh, unhinged, uh, I guess I'll call them friends, like uh, the missing linker, as I call him, who are all been out of shape about how you and Curtis Yarvin and uh, people who sympathize with Trump, you know. consider Linker a friend in any sense whatsoever. Well, I know. He doesn't consider you one either. But even though he worked for you for like two two minutes or something once, yeah. right, I think. But, yeah, 20. Anyway, uh, well, I get on with him, although less so all the time. Anyway, um, so I, the point is, I mean, you know, that's a variation of the argument I've just been making, which is the requirements of vindicating our point of view are very high. I'll, I'll stop there. They are right now. But I think they've always been. A, that's, that's no, 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 no. I think that that this is one of those parts, the, those moments in history that Jaffa spoke very eloquently about that's going to require something like a Lincoln, but it's not required. And Jeff, Jaffa never says in ha- Crisis of the House Divided that it's required all the time. What needs to happen is a return once uh-huh. more to the founding principles, which can only be done with a Lincoln-like character who understands not only what those principles are, but how to articulate them in a way that the, what did you call it, Michael, the, the truck driver in Michigan or whatever yeah. it was you said, can internalize and understand those because it, it it follows his instincts. That's what we need today. But I don't think that American politics ever required that all of the time. I don't think Jaffa says so either. I don't think you're right. I think. And, and also let's the, the more, I think the more fundamental point here, not to be just, is that Jaffa essentially over the time comes to agree with Kendall and he repudiates the view of crisis that Lincoln refounded America. This yeah, is Jaffa's right. 40 year journey. From yeah. crisis to new birth at at his funeral i remember very vividly tom west's eulogy saying that you know that jaffa only became jaffa around 1975. the jaffa <laughs> before that is the pre-jaffa jaffa the jaffa that we know <laughs> is the is the jaffa who comes to see I, I i got so much in crisis right but the most fundamental point of crisis is is actually incorrect lincoln did not read something into the founding that wasn't there he just unearthed and recovered something that was already there. And Jaffa spent the whole rest of his career, in a sense, vindicating that view. As for, you know, my podcast with uh, Curtis, uh, I'm, I'm just saying this to, to, to troll and irritate people now. <laughs> I like Curtis personally. He's a fun guy to be around. Oh, absolutely. I met I, him for the first time about six weeks ago, and I was utterly charmed and think he's crazy. He is. He's really and fun. He's really, he, he's, he's, he's really well read. I think yeah. I, my, my criticism of him on that would be that he's too well read in obscure stuff and not well read enough in classics. So he's yeah. kind of a contrarian. His view is like, if everybody reads this book and talks about it, then you know, there must be a lot of groupthink behind it. So I'm going to go and pull out of the shelf something that no one's read in 100 years and see what I can yeah. find there. There's, <laughs> there's great value in that, although I think it, it can lead you in, in, in certain weird directions. Um, he's, he's, an, he's a, I think, profound analysis uh, analyst of the current regime with whom I, I, I say to him, you know, I just saw him last week. Um, we had a, a wonderful dinner, a, a few of us uh, in, in Vegas, because he, and you know, he just flew in just for that, just to have this dinner and we had, <laughs> we had a great time. Um, I think he and I have a pretty, we're, we, we're pretty well aligned on our analysis of the present and what the regime yeah. is. Um, we're pretty, we're 50, 50 or, or at best, and maybe worse than that on, where we think things are going in the future. 
and we're really not aligned at all on the metaphysical underpinnings of everything. But yeah. I find disagreeing with Curtis to be so much more fruitful and interesting than a lot of the little hair splitting, stupid academic type debates that I could be oh. with other people. Oh, absolutely. So, you know yeah. what? I, if I'm scandalizing the likes of the pearl clutchers like Damon Linker and Jeet here and whoever the hell else complained about that. And there were a lot of people that complained about it. Yeah. That just means that it's working. It's having the intended effect. Yes. And yeah. I'm going to keep doing it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let me just mention here, I, I have one last sort of short question to ask you, but let me just mention here as a placeholder for later, and this is something, Lucretia, you and I might want to do a, a show or two about. Uh, you know, there's uh, Jaffa's, um, well, it's a chapter in the Conditions of Freedom on, I forget the title, but it's on Equality and the Declaration of Independence. It was a lecture given at Hillsdale, yeah. I think in 1970 or 71. So that's after Kendall had died. I think Kendall died at age 58 and 1969 or something. Died yes, relatively I 68 young. is the number that's in my head, but maybe that's so I'm in 68. So but that, that lecture of Jaffa's, I think, is 1970. There's an audio of it, which you can find on the Hillsdale website somewhere. Now, I noticed something in the audio uh, recording of the lecture that's not in the printed version, because uh, you clean it up, but he mentions my good friend, Wilmore Kendall. This is after Kendall's died, but he's still calling him. They used to, Mike Yulman told me and other people, yeah. they used to talk late at night of course those days long distance rates were uh, pretty high right, so right. they were talking like midnight till three in the morning yeah. um and and I, so i i've, I've been saying for a while it, flannery I, I think flannery wrote the um pretty sure flannery wrote the preface to crisis of the strauss divided in any event flannery wrote some yeah. very short introduction to something jaffa wrote and he mentioned that he said you know they would stay up until three in the morning yeah on the phone arguing to the knife <laughs> Well, okay. I, I, but I think, I mean, I do think that, you know, the, the real tragedy of Kendall's passing, by the way, I know people who know Kendall said he wouldn't have published the book, Basic Symbols, the way it came out. He wanted to work on it a lot more and thinks that George Carey did Kendall a disservice. Uh, okay. That's a recondite point. But the point is, is that uh, hey, we were deprived of a- point to, uh, By the way, for, the, for the, any paleocons listening- and wary uh, but curious about the rapprochement. When I arrived in Claremont in 1994, Doug Jeffrey's dog was named Wilmore. All right, that shows goes to show that we were trying yeah. to make common cause 27 years ago, people. Yeah. Well, I, my, my point was, uh, I think that the great lost debate that would have been a, better than Jaff and Bradford would have been, if, if Kendall lived on another decade, that would have been epic and that would have been fantastic. And but, anyway. you know, it's a point that so uh, some of the TAC people reached out, wanted to talk, and we put together a little meeting with me and Ryan Williams and Arthur and some of the TAC guys. And, you know, Ryan had made the point to them and they didn't know this because these are youngish guys. I mean, these are, yes, these are, these right. are under 40 people, right? Yeah. Uh, said, you know, a lot of the bad blood is personal and actually there's probably not even a, I mean, there's an ideological component to it, but some of it's just stupid stuff like who supported who and over this controversy mm. and all of that. And then he said, you know, Jeff supported Bradford for the NH in 1981. Right. And those, they didn't know that. Yeah. They, they would have thought, oh no, Jaffa must have led the crusade to destroy Bradford and put in, yeah. you know, I, Bill Bennett. Yeah. Yeah. I love Bill Bennett. I have nothing against right. Bill Bennett, but it just goes to show like Jaffa enjoyed arguing with these guys in part right. because Kendall and Bradford were really the the peaks, right? The yeah. philosophic and historical peaks. They were not midgets. They weren't even middleweights. I mean, these were serious heavyweights. Right. Jaffa didn't waste time with people that he didn't think were uh, <laughs> right. of that caliber. And he loved to argue with them, and, but he never, he never took an argument personally, which may have been 
there may have been a downside to that in the sense that because Jaffa never himself never took an argument personally, he could get really bombastic with others who yeah. did take it personally. Right. He might, yeah. His view was, why did you take that personally? And the answer is they just don't have your steel you know, soul in a way. Yeah. So you got to go a little easier on certain people. But he, he, he loved those guys personally. Yeah. All right. Last question to get out on a totally unrelated subject. I stumbled across an hour long video of you on YouTube going into great detail on how to cook a really good leg of lamb. When are we going to no, get no, the leg of lamb? What's that? It was just, it was, just, it was a sauce. All, all, just the lamb demi-glace. So the reason <laughs> when am I going to get the Michael Anton cooking channel? That's what I, my question. Well, so this was an idea of my friend, David Reboy. I don't know if you ever met Reboy, but I know who he is, but pretty yeah. big internet presence. And it was a Lincoln fellow. Wow. Oh, golly. I don't remember when back in like 07. This was a while ago. Um, maybe, maybe later. Than that, but. <laughs> so Reboy, you know, has been saying to me for a while, you can make a cooking video. You got to make a cooking video. And I'm well, okay. I'll think about it. And what happened was my Texas versus Cal. First of all, I had people coming over. So I was going to make this dinner anyway. And the Texas versus California thing comes out, and I have I have so many um, stalker troll types. One of whom I think his name is Christian Vanderbrook. I forgot, but he's a bulwark writer. And oh he, yeah, he, he just utterly, totally lied about the. In the conclusion, I say this could get up if if California keeps trying to tell Texas what to do, they could provoke a conflict, and that would get ugly. That would be a bad thing. But if I had to bet on who would win it. I would yeah. bet on Texas over California. So Vanderbrook deliberately lies and misinterprets this, this as Anton wants there to be another civil war. He's a bad yeah. person. And then a right. bunch of people pile on and go, oh, the tough guy who says he wants there to be another civil war. Well, look at this. He's apparently like a cook and <laughs> he's written like <laughs> reviews of cookbooks and stuff. So that must mean that he's, you know, uh, uh, a to borrow from Machiavelli, effeminate and pusillanimous. <laughs> Despite the fact that I have cooked in commercial kitchens a couple times and is one of the most testosterone adult uh, environments you could ever go into, but just leave that entirely aside. So I just said on a, you know, on chat, you know, text with Dave that day, like, you know what, just to make my critics steam, I'm going to make a lamb demi glass today to like, you know, <laughs> prove that, that, that I am what you say I am. And Dave says, oh, you got to film it, like film it, you can film this. Yeah. Okay. And so I just, you know, use a cell phone and Right. That's good. And he did all the work. He edited it. He put the soundtrack Uh on. He put in these links and these pictures and stuff like that. And it got a pretty good response um, on his channel, Late Republic Nonsense, to those listening on Substack. (laughs) I did another one a few days ago because I was out in California visiting my mom and dad. And my dad loves the classic French omelet, which was an ordeal for me to learn how to make. All of that is explained in the video and in an article that I wrote. But I made it's much shorter than the lamb demi glass one, but I made a, a, an omelet video that oh. it, again edited about and just posted it today. So if you want to learn how to make a rolled French omelet, uh, it's up there. I think tomorrow I'm going to make a classic French onion soup because my son has been asking me to make it, to which I've asked him, Have you ever had it? He says, No. <laughs> Are you going to eat it? He, says, he, just, he doesn't have a clear explanation other than he just really wants to make onion soup. So we're going to yeah. make it. Uh, I've got a bunch of beef stock that I made around Christmas time that's frozen that I can use. And, and the rest of it's not that hard. Um, we'll see where it goes from there. But yeah. you know, I, I did this in a way for Dave because he thought it would be cool. And also, Reboy's channel is political, but it's also just heavy on exercise and diet and food and jazz music and hi-fi audio equipment. So it's it's not just political, 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 relentless kind of stuff to get you down. It's a mix. 
And yeah. he says that these things that go out, you know, are, are much more lifestyle oriented. Um, they get, they get great responses. So oh, I'm, I'm happy to have, to help him out and I'm happy he's helping me out. And, uh, and I'm certainly happy that he, you know, he, he does a lot of like what I guess in Hollywood, they would call it post-production work to make food <laughs> ready. Right. And I don't do any of it. I just make the food and take the video and send it to him. And right. He does it. It's great. All right. We have run way long. Lucretia, do you have, have any last questions or comments you want to get in? You, uh, we, we've kept you kind of quiet here, which is a couple of guys do that, right? We're bad. Yeah. But... Yeah, yeah. It's all that patriarchy stuff. <laughs> Right. Well, maybe you want and to send don't this make out any to... lamb for me. I despise lamb. You despise uh, lamb? Oh, I do. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's no, one of her defects. My but... last comment no, is it's actually it's not it's not a congenital defect. It's a def- defect of uh, a certain Greek restaurant in Claremont. What and... Yanni's? You didn't like Yanni's? No. no oh was, my God! It was an afternoon spent with. Um, Ed Erler, we started at lunch. We left at nine o'clock that night, oh. and there were many Hungarian beers drunk in the middle yeah. of that time. Was, was, and then, um, was Shram not there? Was too drunk to know better than to say yes to the ouzo. <laughs> oh yeah, the ouzo is really oh, nasty yeah. there. And so now, uh, when I eat lamb, all it reminds I, I uh. hate licorice to begin with. And uh, <laughs> so anyway, I was yeah, I'll never eat lamb again. Well, well, all right. My last comment very quickly is our friend R.J. Pistrito, who, as you know, traces his roots entirely back to Sicily, which is a rocky island in the Mediterranean on which there are, I think, many sheep. Um, He's been (laughs) to my house for dinner a few times. And I always say, hey, you know, anything he's his one iron rule is no lamb. Oh, and I've asked him, how is this Sicilian? (laughs) Not eat lamb. Anyway. He doesn't. He doesn't like it. So I make other Italian things. He's very happy. He's a he's a wonderful dinner guest, but you just can't serve him lamb. I just find that a little odd. Then again, then again, I uh, I've said this before. My DNA is 100% Mediterranean. It's Italian, Greek, and Lebanese, and I can't stand olives. So how the hell did that yeah. happen? Well, you know, that's only in America, as Yogi Berra would say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lucretia, you want to close us out? Always drink your whiskey neat and. Don't eat lamb. <laughs> oh, that's all wrong. All right. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye, everybody. We'll talk to you Enjoy next your week. Life. Thanks, uh, Steve. <laughs>
Ricochet. Join the conversation.